market doesn't, what we've, I've learned, what I've witnessed is that the market does not create enough affordable housing in here. <laughs> and so we are left with trying to develop mechanisms, tools to supplement that strata of housing because it's not something that our market will develop on its own. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Kate Meese, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission and host of our regular monthly series on smart growth and livable communities where we discuss ways we can create equitable communities that provide better housing, transportation, and economic opportunities for all residents. Today as our guest, we have Hugh Morris. Hugh Morris manages the Smart Growth Program for the National Association of Realtors. Hugh is a seasoned urban planner with 25 years of experience working on transportation issues. Prior to his work with the realtors, he spent 10 years working with Rails to Trails Conservancy helping communities convert abandoned railroad corridors into hiking and biking trails. Hugh has dedicated the last 12 years with the Smart Growth Program, where he helps realtor associations around the country to become advocates for smart growth style development in their communities. Hugh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So some of our listeners may be surprised to hear that the National Association of Realtors has staff dedicated to smart growth. Can you talk a little bit about how this program and your position came about? Sure. It really all started about 15 years ago with what we call a a presidential advisory group or PAG. And the realtor who was then president of NAR decided that this thing called smart growth required some investigation into what it was and what it might mean for the real estate industry and particularly for NAR's members. So the president appointed about 15 realtors And they met several times over the course of a year to discuss the topic and produce recommendations. And what they recommended was the creation of the Smart Growth Program that we now have at the Realtor Association. And it was designed really to produce information about Smart Growth that our members could use. And we also have now about 1,100 local Realtor Associations around the country. And the information was really also to help them understand smart growth in their community and and what they might do with it. And we also, at the national level here, the PAG recommended that we become sort of engaged in the national discussion of smart growth. And so we have, over the years, been members of a variety of of national level groups, such as the Smart Growth Network. We now sit on the steering committee of the National Complete Streets Coalition, that sort of thing. Since the beginning of the program, We've added a variety of resources that our state and local realtor associations 
can use. And the idea is that it really helps them become involved in local land use and transportation public policy projects. So if there are zoning changes going on, comprehensive plan updates, biking, walking plans, that sort of thing. And so just real quickly, the resources we give them are uh, smart growth grants for policy work, placemaking grants for creating public gathering places. We have a four-hour smart growth class for realtors. We publish a magazine twice a year called On Common Ground, which goes to about 35,000 people. We have a program we call the Land Use Initiative, where if there is a pending kind of land use related ordinance in a local area, that local realtor association can have it reviewed by a law firm to kind of understand what its implications might be for the real estate industry. And lastly, we have a program where we will pay the full cost of a poll in for a local association where they want to just pull the residents of that area to explore what growth and transportation attitudes are in their community. Yeah, and we've seen this this set of resources be really helpful both at that local level, as you said, with these great resources for the the associations, but also your engagement at the the national level. We've really appreciated the role you've played in the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference as a sponsor and a thought leader who's really introduced some interesting ideas to us and given us a whole different perspective from the viewpoint of realtors. So that has been really helpful. And I think one of the pieces that you guys do that I always look forward to is the National Community and Transportation Preferences Survey. We always take a look at that to see where people are at in terms of what their desires are for housing and transportation. You guys released your most recent version in the last couple of months, and I'm curious what surprised you most about the findings this year. Sure. Yeah, that poll is really kind of one of the most fun things that that I get to do. We do it uh, about every two years or so. And it has, um, we've converted it recently in the last couple of years to using an online polling universe. And that allows us to get a much, afford a much bigger sample size. So it was about 3000 folks in the 50 largest metro areas. And that allows us to do a lot of cross tabs that we otherwise, otherwise might not be able to do. And for me, there was a happy surprise this year or in late 2017 when we uh, released it. And that is that there was a pair of questions that we asked over the years where we ask about a respondent's preference for housing and the transportation implications of where they choose to live. And in the first question, the choice is effectively, would you be game? Would you like to live in a smaller home with a smaller yard and you could walk to places you'd like to go? Or would you prefer a larger home, larger yard, and you'd have to drive to those places? And in 2017, as in years past, residents have preferred by a small margin and almost within the the, um, margin of error of the poll, they've preferred the smaller house and being able to walk. And then in the second question, the choice is effectively the type of dwelling unit. So now we're asking them to choose, would you live in an attached dwelling unit, so a condo, apartment, a townhome, and be able to walk to where you needed to go? Or would you prefer a single family house and you'd have to drive. And in years past, the single family home has really trumped the attached dwelling unit. And we've seen a shift back from the walkable community over to, I'll drive because I really would prefer the, the single family home. But in 2017, for the first time, the preference for walkability trumped the dwelling type. Now, again, it was by a very small margin, but 
you know, it kind of it, it did jump over that line. So that was a nice surprise. Yeah, I, I was heartened to see that. And I thought that it was interesting that not only is there a preference there, but people are, are more satisfied with quality of life when they live in walkable communities, as one of your questions um, showed, and also that six in 10 people would actually pay more to live in a walkable community. So that may or may not be the multifamily unit, but certainly there's a desire for more walkability across a range of different housing types. And given that that aligns with our environmental goals, what are your thoughts on ways that we can make more of this supply available? Sure. I think there might be a number of, I guess, strategies or, or factors. You know, to my way of thinking, there are kind of two types of smart growth development. One is what we built a hundred years ago, and they're the kind of the core of our our cities uh, that have you know just stayed around. And I'll come back to that in a second. But the other type of smart growth is what I might call kind of a smart growth island. And these are new developments where there are smart growth in nature. They have a mix of housing types, sidewalks. You can walk to some things, but they're built on a green field. And most people, most adults need to actually leave the island every day to go to work. And near me in DC here is one called the Kentlands, for example. It's been very successful and it's a lovely place, but most people do leave the smart growth island to go to work. But kind of back to the old school organic smart growth found in the core of our older cities with the grid street network and whatnot, these are places where new development is almost by definition an infill. And be it on a a surface parking lot or tearing down a two-story building and replacing it with something larger. And that that kind of building, developing that kind of higher density, maybe mixed-use structure is just more difficult. And it's really a developer not a home builder who kind of creates those those structures, if you will. And the process of you know getting the land and the permits and designing and building takes way longer than building homes on a, a greenfield. So there's there's a much longer lag in terms of consumer taste changing and when developers who do that higher density stuff can kind of get around to it, if you will. So my sense is that developers are kind of caught up with that in many of at least the, the larger cities and with that market demand in concept, but there's you know still lagging in terms of delivering, delivering that walkable community that people want. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, I think it does. And I, I think I'll throw in just one more. I mean, we've been hearing a lot about missing middle. And I think there's certainly the the infill in the core of our, our communities. And I think people traditionally think of infill and they think of high density apartment buildings. And then there's the suburban or even the, the greenfield uh, walkable development. But somewhere in between is the smaller multi-unit clustered housing that fits in the scale of, of single family homes, but helps meet some of the demand for walkable urban living. And I think there's a growing role for that. And one of the reasons that I bring that up is it seemed in your survey that there was a, an important phase of life factor. So some of the people that there was a, a question that asked about mismatch and it seemed like a lot of the people that were living in detached homes but would prefer a, m- a more walkable community, even if it meant being in an attached home, were millennials who may have enjoyed the urban environment but moved for a better school or yard once they had kids. So how do we think of it? And similarly, on the other end, 
when we look at some of our, our boomers and our aging population, they may have enjoyed the upkeep of a yard and, and having that facility to enjoy, but maybe at this point they want less upkeep and they want to be a place where they don't have to drive. So is there a way we can better capture people at different phases in their life, either through design or through where we build? Yep, I think so. And you know, the missing middle concept is interesting. And I'm actually pleased <laughs> to report that in this month's uh, Realtor Magazine, which goes to our members, there actually is a an article on the missing middle and a nice schematic about it. So that is, will help sort of get the word out about that. And before I really answer your question, what I've observed or what's a light that's gone on for me in the last couple of years in attending like the New Partners Conference and um, the Congress for the New Urbanism Conference is that there are different types of developers out there. And there actually is a subset of developers who are interested in delivering affordable housing. Right, they're kind of mission-driven developers rather than what you might call profit-driven developers, and these are people who are—they feel like they want to make a difference and and deliver a product that is for the the middle class that can really help help out where there is a missing type of housing in our community. So that's kind of the light bulb that went on for me that there are these different types of developers, but that mismatch is interesting. I agree, and when that popped up. It was curious. And in terms of retrofitting neighborhoods, it seems to me that there are a robust movement is afoot to alter zoning codes in some cities to permit people with a little more land to create an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, DC has done that recently. I think Portland, Oregon, you know, a handful of others. So I think there's there is some movement around the country to start to permit accessory dwelling units. And whether it's converting a garage or building a new structure on a property. And that has the potential over time to create a lot more density and kind of more affordable units, if you will. And another budding change that I've noticed is has to do with the amount of parking that cities are requiring in in new or rehabbed buildings. That requirement seems to be trending lower to the point of zero in some cases. And in the neighborhood where I live, in DC, which has a subway granted subway stop and lots of bus service, car share, bike share. There was a developer who, after a long debate with the city, uh, they finally gave him uh, permission to develop his proposed, it was like a six or seven story apartment building with ground floor retail. He was able to do it without putting in any parking at all, which made the neighbors a little nervous. But I think it has gone well enough that there is now another six-story apartment building going up across the street without parking. So I thought that trend, and that makes the building parkings expensive to put in. And by eliminating that, maybe it makes it possible for the developer to create something that is a little more affordable, if at all, right? So if you had to put in parking, maybe it just wouldn't pencil at all, and there'd be no uh, kind of infill development there. Yeah, we've seen similar trends. And just looking at the legislative year we had in the state of California last year, there are a number of bills that were aimed at making it easier to do accessory dwelling units. And we've also seen the passage in the last couple of years of bills that give more 
rights to developers uh, to basically lower parking. So I think we're recognizing that with the affordable housing crisis, that we need to be thinking differently about how we utilize that space and, and parking becomes less of a priority when you're talking about either housing people or cars, you got to house the people. So <laughs> I think that's an encouraging trend that we're seeing. I think one of the other pieces that popped out to me from your study was the the difference in preference for we talked about a little bit about um, the older generation and, and definitely seeing more of a need for walkability. It also it stood out to me that people living in small towns aren't don't seem to be experiencing the the supply of the type of walkable community vibrancy that that's available in other communities. Are you seeing any trends to make more of this available in in smaller or rural communities? I think there is a desire for that. And we are just now kind of investigating, developing a kind of a rural smart growth program for our smaller realtor associations. We've been doing some of that over the last few years where we will, through our, our grants, pay for a consultant. And we've used a couple who used to work for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, their Main Streets group. So these have been for like small towns in Ohio and Pennsylvania where there is a main street that's just kind of been dying. So, you know, we'll just bring the consultant in and for a few days, they'll talk to the local leaders, property owners, business owners, elected officials, and kind of develop a game plan for them after doing some market research also about kind of how they might get their main street going again and fill up those empty storefronts. So we've been working on some of that for the rural areas. And an interesting thing for other markets is the creation of smaller units, which seems to be gaining some some traction also. And in fact, the National Building Museum here in DC has an exhibit now called Making Room, which has this kind of the nifty kind of hands-on experience where you walk through apartments that are very small and square footage, but they're so smartly designed that they don't really feel cramped. And often this involves, you know, Murphy beds, which you can actually pull up and down and kind of try them out in bathrooms where the glass panels that define the shower can actually move and be swung against the bathroom wall, thereby making the bathroom feel bigger when you're not using the shower. So there are some design techniques going on where I think making smaller units that also might be more affordable and for, for folks in various stages of their life. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense, especially in the hotter markets in the nation. One thing I wanted to ask you about it, it seems like there have been some trends in the realtor world, like walk score, where, you know, there's tools that people pick up on and, and use it to drive interest in certain types of homes in a, in I think, a really positive way. And I'm wondering if we have reached any sort of tipping point or building momentum around the idea that this isn't really just about the cost of the housing. We've tended to talk about affordable housing as being 30% of your household income, but groups like the Center for Neighborhood Technology are bringing in transportation into that equation as the second largest household cost. And the picture can become very different. If you look at just the housing piece a little over half of U.S. neighborhoods are considered affordable, but if you take in transportation as well, it becomes only 26%. So that's a 
a small portion of Americans who live in neighborhoods they can truly afford. And I think for a long time, we've had this idea that we can drive till we qualify and we're seeing the evidence otherwise. And I know for me, looking at watching some of the shows out there, like House Hunters, I'm always screaming at the TV when they pick the house that's far away and you know, will mean they have an hour long commute. And I think a lot of us aren't putting that cost into the equation. So I'm wondering if you see any change in understanding from the, the realtor side. I think that is slowly uh, sinking in. We actually do use some of the slides from the Center for Neighborhood Technologies Index in our smart growth class for realtors. So every year, at least a, a thousand realtors see those slides and start to <laughs> put maybe help their their clients understand that overall calculation. And I think people are also just generally home buyers are getting savvier about what that might mean to them if they need to have a car for every licensed driver in their house versus living in a place where maybe there are some walkability options or transit options for them. And I totally agree that the folks who who actually, from a household finance point of view, most need the walkable communities and access to transit can least afford it. And aside from some of those options that I mentioned earlier, the, the ADUs and eliminating parking. And in terms of affordability, there's really like a, a big long and housing need. There's a big spectrum there. But one technique that I've become a, an increasing fan of seems to be this land trust option where particularly in areas where there may be loads of vacant houses that maybe the city government has taken possession of due to tax issues on the owner's part and, and things like that. And we've had a really nice success story in Richmond, Virginia over the last couple of years where the Richmond Association of Realtors held a two-day conference with uh, community stakeholders about what to do with all of Richmond's vacant properties. And they kind of settled on that a land bank where this kind of a nonprofit would take possession of these vacant houses and then get them out to people who, who needed them. But there was no mechanism for creating land banks in Virginia. So the state assembly ended up passing legislation that enabled local governments to create land banks. And now the Richmond city of Richmond has created a local land bank, and they are starting to work on taking possession of some of those vacant properties. And what they do is they separate the value of the land from the value of the house, the structure. And in many urbanized areas, it's the land that's actually more valuable than, than the structure itself. And so by the land bank holding uh, title to the, the land, they can then sell the house to somebody in that, that income strata that you were just talking about. And they can both benefit then from any appreciation that might occur to the structure over the term that the person owns it. And then it kind of just goes back into the pot when they're done. So anyway, that seems like a mechanism where the market doesn't, what we've, I've learned, what I've witnessed is that the market does not create enough affordable housing in here. <laughs> and so we are left with trying to develop mechanisms, tools to supplement that strata of housing because it's not something that our market will develop on its own. 
That's right. And I'm so glad that we have partners like you working in this space. And unfortunately, we could talk about these issues for much longer, but we are out of time. Hugh, thank you so much for joining us. And I encourage everyone to check out the magazine Hugh referenced called On Common Ground. Some great topics, as Hugh has discussed, and a lot to learn um, from some of the, the issues they've put out. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to see you next time in Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.